Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, the Scottish Grand Final! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Cook. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, where we have reviewed all the kings and queens of Scots, from Kenneth McAlpin to James VI, and we are now at the grand final stage of the playoffs to find out who is the Rexiest monarch of all in the history of Scotland. As with the first round results, we're going to go through the four monarchs who are in the grand final, take you through their biography, their battliness, scandal, subjectivity, etc., fact by fact, comparing them against each other, and then at the end of the episode, Ali and I will not vote. Yeah. So it's going to be entirely down to the public vote to decide who will be crowned the Scottish Rex Factor champion. Mm. Now, when we did that original first round results uh, reveal, you got a little bit confused about who exactly was going to be in the grand final, perhaps because you were getting a little ill. Uh, um no, I know Robert the Bruce is in it. He is, but Robert the Bruce is the top seed, so he mm. wasn't in the first few rounds, uh, the first round, but he is in the grand final. So we don't quite know how popular he is going to be. He's not yet been tested under public vote. Do you know who I think? Can I tell you who I think is in it? You may. Malcolm? Yes, you kept asking me which Malcolm was in the final. Second. And my revelation was neither Malcolm got to the final. Oh. Uh, Alexander? Neither of the Alexanders got to the what? final. <laughs> I was on pretty safe ground with them. Uh, David? David did not get to the final. I think I'm fresh out of names. Oh, William, uh, William, and Ma- William and Mary. Mary, Queen of Scots. <laughs> she Thank won. You. She won Group C. Okay. Mary, Queen of Scots. Robert the Bruce as the top seed in Group B. It was James the Fourth. Oh yes, nice chap. And in Group A, it was Constantine the Second, who was the one that I think you kept calling Malcolm. Murderous. No, that was Malcolm II. Oh, I think, God's sake. essentially, you were you just honed in on Malcolm II and were convinced <laughs> that he was in the final, despite all evidence. So who's Alexander the then, the one that I thought was Malcolm? Uh, no, it was Constantine's one you thought was Malcolm. And he... Well, we'll find out. Let's Goodness go me. through the Goodness monarchs. Me. I think that might be required. Oh, God, I'm going to give myself a headache. <laughs> so the grand finalists in chronological order, Constantine II, mm. born in 874, mm-hmm. but was about 26 years old when he became king in the year 900. Mm-hmm. He's the son of hashtag remember Ieth, mm-hmm. and he is our 11th seed based on, top, uh, based on overall scores. Right. Robert the Bruce... Born in 1274, he was about 32 when he became king in 1306. Married in Chelmsford. Mm. Mm. He's the son of Robert de Bruce, Mm. and he is our top C, scored more points than any other Scottish monarch. Mm. James IV was born in 1473, Mm. he was 15 when he became king in 1488, son of James III, and he is our third seed. Oh, strong, strong. And finally, Mary, Queen of Scots, born in 1542, six days old when she became queen in 1542. Mm. And she is the daughter of James V and our 13th seed, the lowest seed of the Rex Factor winners. So we've got one, four, eleven, thirteen. Uh, one, three, eleven and thirteen. Oh dear, that's quite tough to 
beat those top two, isn't it? Well, it's interesting. So we've got um, two of the very, very top seeds, but also two of the very, very bottom seeds. So as you say, scores don't automatically yeah. mean mm. people have that certain something. Yeah. So we are going to go through their lives and reigns, but of course the most important thing for a lot of people is how do they look on their cards? Oh, yeah. Always forget this bit. It's lovely. <laughs> oh, yeah. Constantine II, uh, wise, staff, green cloak, old beard. Robert the Bruce needs no introduction. <laughs> the best card ever drawn. <laughs> Dancing robot man, as uh, one of our younger viewers. Oh yeah, completely. Oh, listeners once said. Good, um, good call. Oh yeah, remember this chap, James the Fourth, with the um, King of Clubs as a bird on his finger. Mm-hmm. A li- nice card. I feel he looks mm. competent. <laughs> um, and Mary Queen of Scots, uh, holding a piece of paper. Presumably a plot, Ooh. Uh, or a love letter, um, and just you know looking pretty stylish. Hmm. Yeah. But your uh, your top top card. Okay, that is very difficult. Not Mary Queen of Scots. It's quite a dull card. Mm. Um, very tempted to say Robert the Bruce because it's all fighty fighty, but no face. That could be anyone. But for me, it's between my man James the Fourth who's looking pretty cool, armour underneath quite a stylish little overcoat there, sword, uh, scroll in his hand, pointing. He's authoritative. Oh, this wise old man. I'm going James Fourth. James the Fourth, the best mm. card, despite yep. Ali prefacing that description with Robert the Bruce, best card ever, <laughs> ever drawn. Did I really? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> well, you, you grew into it, as it was <laughs> In terms of their real-life appearances, we don't know what Constantine II looked like at such a long time ago. The only thing we do have to go on is that he was described at the end of his reign by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle as the white-haired warrior. Oh, well, he's done rather well on this card, then. Hmm. Robert the Bruce was probably about six foot one in his prime. Wow. Tall man. And a modern digital reconstruction of his skull suggested a very stocky and powerful man. Uh, but also perhaps suffered with leprosy or some kind of skin disease. Oh, so. every up has it down. <laughs> Uh, James IV is described as a medium build, handsome in appearance, never used to cut or shave his beard. He doesn't even have one on the card. Until he was betrothed and discovered that his uh, to-be, Margaret Tudor, didn't like beards, so he shaved it all off for the wedding. And finally, of course, Mary Queen of Scots, considered a very pretty child and beautiful woman. She was nearly six foot tall. Mm. uh, Very tall for a woman in those days, indeed pretty tall. Uh, for a woman now, mm. stooped a bit in her youth, uh, but was praised for her very smooth and pale skin. Mm. Would have mm. worked well in Scotland. Biography! Now, before we do the individual biographies, I thought I'd separate out the contexts for everybody's reign. Yeah. And then I'll put it back in. Constantine II, when he became king, as I said in uh, 900, Scotland wasn't yet really even formed as a nation at this point. We still got these shifting identities and different kingdoms in what Mm. we would now call Scotland. And indeed, the royal Alpine dynasty had only recently been restored after hashtag Rememberiath had been overthrown. Mm. Constantine and his cousin had gone into exile. And what's more, Vikings are running amok. Yeah, they do that, don't they? And uh, Constantine's cousin and predecessor, Donald II, is killed by Vikings. Mm. For Robert the Bruce, Scotland, once again, not really in existence as a kingdom. We recognise the nation of Scotland, but Edward I, of course, has taken the crown from John Balliol. Yeah, he was trying to sort it right out, and it would have been fine. Put down the rebellion of William Wallace. Uh, In 1305, a chap called John Commyn was the main power in Scotland, and he made peace 
with Edward, and Robert the Bruce was very much a sidelined figure mm. at this point. Mm. James IV was followed on a, from a succession of Jameses who all sort of struggled to elevate the Stuart monarchy above the other nobles. Yeah. So they're all kind of struggling to get on, and after early promise, they all then get themselves killed by some various means. James I and his father, James III, both murdered by Tennis their own balls. subjects. James I. Yeah. Mm. And finally, Mary, Queen of Scots, that pattern of the Jameses all dying off young continued, and her father, James V, died after a defeat to Henry VIII. Mm. So Mary becomes to the throne as a six-day-old baby. Scotland is divided between those who are pro-France and pro-England, and Henry VIII is trying mm. to take over and do what uh, Edward I tried to do and bring Scotland into England by marriage. Failed, though, didn't he? Mm. So who do you think had the toughest intray of those four monarchs? Uh, I think James had it easiest. Mm. Uh, Mary Queen of Scots might be argued to have it easiest. She started off as Queen of France. I mean, it went downhill. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, Robert the Bruce, yes, he had a lot in his intray. But Constantine the second, he didn't even have an (laughs) intray. So I reckon Constantine. He had to invent an intray. Yeah. He'd say Scottish problems, and people say, What's what Sc- Scottish? Qu'est-ce que say? <laughs> Got this new idea, guys. Yeah. So, yeah, these two were Constantine. Yeah. I suppose also, actually, Robert the Bruce, in a way, didn't have an intro because he wasn't actually the son of a king. Mm. So he had to kind of force his way into the office yeah. and say, Right, I'm taking this. What's yeah. in there? Oh, oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I made a huge mistake. <laughs> So, biographies. Let's find out who everybody is. I think you're starting to remember Constantine II, yeah. but let's fill in the blanks. He becomes king in 900, and we're talking the reigns of Edward the Elder and Athelstan in England. Mm. Vikings were raiding from about year 900, and more of them come over in 902 when they were expelled from Dublin. Mm. And the grandson of a chap called Ivor the Boneless is in charge of a, quite a large group of Vikings. Yeah leads him to Scotland. Then in 904, Constantine ignored your advice and decided to take them on in battle at Straturn. And he won. Oh, right. Major victory against the Vikings. Ivor is killed, and the Vikings are expelled from Scotland for the rest of Constantine's reign. Yeah, that's big points, isn't it? Well done, that man. Then in 906 at Schoon, um, there was a public ceremony led by Constantine to mark the defeat of the Vikings and also new unity after the divisions after his father had been overthrown. Mm. Um, so we've got an alliance between church and crown, Constantine pledging to uphold the laws and customs of the country, and it's the first time that Scotland becomes an identifiable nation and identity. It's actually that word, or Alpa, mm. Scotland, is in the sources for the first right. time. That's yeah, you see. That's he's made his intro there. He has. Hmm. Uh now the next thing for Constantine is Northumbria because the Vikings have taken York in 910. Hmm. Then in 914 a chap called Eldred of Bernicia, which is the northern bit of Northumbria, uh was kicked out by the Vikings, so he went to Constantine and asked him for help. Hmm. So Constantine fights two battles at Corbridge, one in 914 and the other in 918 against the Vikings. But he'd already beaten them. Beaten them in Scotland, but now he's okay. got a bit of a buffer state right. with the north of England. Yeah. Um, both kind of score draws. You can argue the toss of who really won. But what he does do is secure that bit as effectively a buffer between him and the Vikings. Right, so that's why he was aiding this fella. Yeah. So that, oh, right, okay. Vikings are predominantly in York, Constantine's in Scotland, and then we've got this middle bit where they kind mm. of have a bit of a fight every now and again, but essentially 
as long as the fighting's there and not in Scotland, that's all right. Mm. The real problem for Constantine comes from Athelstan. Mm. He becomes king of uh, England in 924, and he's got imperial ambitions to take over the whole of Britain. Yeah. He captures York from the Vikings in 927 and expels their leadership. So the Vikings now seek refuge with Constantine in Scotland. Not as the, and not in an aggressive way. As no. In knocking on the door. Please help. Yeah. Um, Athelstan demands that he renounce them. Yeah. And he says that he will, but in secret he actually makes a marriage alliance between him and the Vikings. Right. Marrying one of his children to one of their children. Yeah. So in 934, Athelstan uh, raises a huge army and invaded deep into Scotland. In response to this marriage? And just general Constantine not really playing ball. Goes deep into northern Scotland, but Constantine avoids battle and then comes to terms. Mm. So he doesn't suffer a complete defeat. But he does have to accompany Athelstan to England and witness various charters for the next sort of 18 months or so. So is he he, uh, accepting that the Scottish kingdom is somehow part of a larger kingdom? Not that, but he's accepting that Athelstan is his superior. Right. But then in 937, Constantine leads a grand alliance of Scots, Vikings and Cumbrians, and we have the epic Battle of Brunanburh, where this grand alliance takes on Athelstan and Mm. the Saxons. Athelstan is victorious, but all of the leaders do survive, and indeed Athelstan is the first one of them to die two years later in 939. After that, the Vikings recapture the five boroughs of, sort of Middle England and the city of York. So, despite the defeat, Constantine II has once again got the Vikings as a buffer between him and the powerful emerging English kingdom. Okay, now, uh, yeah, I do remember this, and I sort of remember thinking of it as something along the lines of uh, losing the battle to overall win the war. Mm. Like, taking, taking that defeat because it took the sting from the English and then once Athelstan died they were able to follow up on that mm. losing well enough that it that actually you can live to fight another day yeah it's funny trying to interpret these losses as victories yeah. isn't it? <laughs> they, they somehow are so indeed Constantine II actually abdicated in 943 and retired to be the abbot of a monastery and he doesn't die until 952 when he's about 78 years old hmm that's brilliant going, isn't it? Mm. Next up, chronologically, it is Robert the Bruce. Yeah. Becomes king in 1306, and he takes us through Edward I, Edward II, and Edward III in England. Good, bad, good. <laughs> and his golden age is during the bad one, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Um, in terms of his accession to the throne, he really looked down and out when uh, John Comyn and Edward I made peace between England and Scotland. Then in 1306, he met John Comyn, his rival, in uh, a church... And he killed him in a church. And then he rushed off to Schoon and was crowned king. Just said, do you hear John Commons dead? How do you go? Tricky, isn't it? But, you know, king now. Um, But he was facing the might of Edward I and Mm. indeed the Commons family, who are the most powerful in Scotland. He suffered two early defeats and was forced to flee into exile in Ireland. And his women folk were uh, imprisoned in cages. By Edward the first, <laughs> and uh, two in of his cages. Oh, he had a way, didn't he? <laughs> he certainly did. And two of his brothers were hanged, drawn, and quartered when yeah. they were captured. However, he was inspired to return and fight another day when he was watching a spider struggling to cast its web in a cave. Oh, yeah. Why was it? Was he hiding in a cave? Is that the story? That's, yeah, that's where he was off in exile. 
Oh, in, you contemplating know, he, his fate. When you say in exile, they just sort of mean sitting in a comfy chair in Ireland, <laughs> yeah. not a damp cave or looking in spiders and beetles or whatever. So, Robert the Bruce returns, and boosted by the death of Edward I and the accession of a rather weaker Edward II, he adopts guerrilla tactics and spends two years defeating all of his various enemies in Scotland. Mm. And once he's done that, he goes about retaking all of the Scottish castles which are in English hands. Yeah. And then 1314, the last one at Stirling, he besieges it. Edward II comes to relieve it. And there is a grand battle at Bannockburn where Robert the Bruce wins a remarkable and triumphant victory against the English. Yep. Next. (laughs) Tries to force Edward II to come to terms and makes various raids on northern England and also invades Ireland, Mm. where his brother is made High King. But he's unable to force Edward to recognise him as King and to recognise Scotland as independent. That's pretty bad, isn't it? Edward's rubbish. He is, but ultimately he can get away with not actually bothering about Ed, uh, Robert the Bruce destroying the north of England because he doesn't care about that so much. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got a lot of other things on his plate. Yeah. Uh, we have the Declaration of Arbroath in 1320 where Robert the Bruce, his nobles and his bishops issue a united front to the papacy protesting their own independence as a nation and Robert the Bruce as an independent king of Scotland. It's a declaration to the world that they are separate from England and they will fight to the last man Yeah. until that point has been accepted. Now, Edward II is overthrown by his wife, and uh, in place of him we have the teenage Edward III, but really it's Isabella, uh, the wife's husband, Isabella's lover, Roger Mortimer, who is calling Mm. the shots. England invade Scotland, but once again they are defeated by the Scots, and in 1328, Edward III is forced to sign the Treaty of Edinburgh-Northampton, which finally acknowledges Robert the Bruce as king and Scotland as independent. He beats Edward III? He does, but he's really beating Roger Mortimer at this point. It's a bit before Edward III is actually in charge of armies and an adult. It's before his escape? Before his escape. Okay, right, fine. He's just a witness to all of this. He's essentially just on a horse behind Mortimer being... And it's uh, very well timed, because Robert the Bruce dies one year later in 1329. His health has been in decline for a number of years. Um, He appoints his sort of most trusted lieutenant as guardian, and at the age of 55, but with the kingdom now restored he dies kingdom now restored and accepted as independent and by england brilliant so that's it he that's it. it yeah he should do rather well at this hmm. I reckon. james the fourth mm. he comes to the throne in 1488 his reign takes us through henry the seventh and henry the eighth in england now he came to the throne technically as the putative head of a rebellion against his own father james the third he was just old enough to rule at mm. 15, but he seems to have decided to let others do it instead. Yeah, wise. Um, he gets to have some fun, parties a bit, enjoys company of women, mm. and uh, can learn from the errors other people make. Yeah. So in 1480, uh, 1495, he takes over unsullied by any divisions from the minority. Because it wasn't really him. It wasn't really him, and he's able to come in once a lot of the tricky bits have been done and be like, right. Time to go. Mm. Unlike his father, who struggled a bit to gain popularity, James IV is incredibly charming, very cultured, and he's actually quite popular. Mm. And he has a very stable government. Unlike previous minorities, he doesn't kill the last regent or any Mm. fighting. Everyone actually pretty much carries on. Okay. It's unusual for Scotland. Diplomatically, he has 
great success for much of his reign. Um, the Lordship of the Isles was a perennially difficult sort of part of Scotland. It's the Western Isles, really. But there's mm. this title, the Lordship, where somebody claims to be in ownership of it. Right. We have the almost perfectly named Donald Duff Ooh. as the last claimant. Um, and he kicks off again. But ultimately, James forfeits the title to the crown and defeats this final claimant. Yeah, and that's because that was a problem for quite a lot of our monarchs. It was indeed, and that's the end of that. Yeah. Now Henry the Seventh is a new king in England, a new dynasty with the Tudors, Mm. and James wants to force him to come to terms to have an accord between the two nations. But Henry is ignoring him, Mm. so James champions the cause of Perkin Warbeck, who is claiming to be the surviving one of the surviving princes in the tower and technically, mm. therefore, the rightful king of England. Yeah. So, James launches an invasion of northern England, forces Henry VII to the negotiating table and does rather well out of it because he gets to marry the eldest daughter of Henry VII, Margaret Tudor. That's huge news for Scotland, isn't it? It is, and indeed, it's ultimately through that marriage that the Scottish line ends up inheriting the English throne. Oh, wow. Mm. So that's really that's really good for his namesake two times later indeed uh, and he also gets a special sword and hat from the pope oh, that's being nice. a good yeah. boy he also oversees a period of flourishing in the arts science architecture in scotland it's something of a renaissance indeed mm. it is the renaissance mm. and james is very much embodying that he's interested in all sorts of things he even develops a magnificent navy uh. It's the first time Scotland's had that, including these giant ships, the grandest warships in Europe. Yeah, bigger than Henry VIII's, wasn't it? Indeed, although Henry VIII obviously then had to build bigger ones. But, you know. but Henry VIII is the problem. He becomes king in 1509 and joins uh, a thing called the Holy League, which is this alliance in Europe against France, which many feel has got too powerful. Now, James feels obliged to side with France because of the old alliance that's been there for centuries between Scotland and France. So in 1513, when Henry VIII invades France, James, as a chivalrous man, invades northern England. And after some uh, initial successes, unfortunately, the Scots suffer a terrible defeat in the Battle of Flodden. Lots of nobles, thousands of ordinary soldiers, even an archbishop, but most importantly, James IV himself is killed in battle in a heroic final charge, just mm. 40 years old. When you, uh, you know you say heroic final charge. Yeah. Was that the end? Is it like At what point, did, when he died, <laughs> did everyone just go, oh, okay, and like the whole battle just Well, stops. probably most of the Scottish army would not have been aware of it because yeah. thick of the fighting and they were quite busy being slaughtered themselves so yeah. they may not have noticed should have been like a big siren <laughs> someone should have, yeah. yeah this was a waste of a final charge yeah just say and finally Mary Queen of Scots um, so 1542 she became queen uh, so the granddaughter of James IV. Mm. Um, this takes us from Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary I, and Elizabeth I in England, all of the Tudors apart from Henry VII. Gosh, I didn't realise she spanned all that. Yeah. And indeed, the fact she she sees through all of those, and actually if things had turned out in the way she might have hoped, she yeah. would then have been the next monarch in England. Yeah. Um, very difficult at the start. We have what was called the rough wooing mm-hmm. when Henry VIII tried to force the Scots to send uh, the baby Mary to England for marriage to his son, future Edward VI, and for the Scots to break the old alliance with France. Mm. Uh, when the Scots resisted, he launched terrible invasions against the Scots, so Mary was sent to be brought up at the French royal court. Yeah. 
Uh, she was given an excellent education, fated for her wit and her charm and her beauty. And in 1558, she married the Dauphin. And when Elizabeth I became Queen of England, Mary was acclaimed by many in Europe as the true Queen of England because Elizabeth was Protestant yeah. and the daughter of Anne Boleyn. Unfortunately for Mary, things then went downhill pretty quickly. Um, in 1559, Henri of France, the king, was killed after a freak jousting accident, mm. um, which did mean that Mary became Queen Consort of France. But then in 1560, her husband, the king, Francois II, dies at just 15 years old. Mm. Her mother, Mary of Guise, dies at 45 and had been the regent for her in Scotland. And also in 1560, John Knox inspires a Protestant Reformation in mm. Scotland. So when Mary returns as a 19-year-old Catholic widow, Scotland is now virulently Protestant. Yeah, not what the doctor ordered, is it? However, Mary seeks to have a balance of Protestants and Catholics in council. She accepts the new religion for the nation, but she will continue to practice as a Catholic. And her main goal is to be recognised as Elizabeth I's successor in England, because if Elizabeth doesn't have any children, then the next in line by strict primogeniture will be the Stuarts and mm. Mary Queen of Scots. They were due to meet in 1562, but a massacre of French Protestants by her uncle saw the meeting be cancelled. Mm. Um, so Mary ultimately decides to go her own way and marries a chap called Lord Darnley, who is a Catholic with a claim to both the English and Scottish thrones. And a bit of a rogue. He was a bit of a rogue, um, and it led to divisions in Scotland. Um, there's a Protestant rebellion, mm. which Mary is able to defeat, but because Darnley is so wayward and jealous, um, he ends up being assassinated in 1567. Mm. And Mary marries the man who is accused of her husband's murder, a chap called mm. Bothwell. I'd love to get to the bottom of that. Mary negotiated her surrender to a rebel army for Bothwell's escape, and she was then forced to abdicate in favour of her infant son, James VI. Mm. However, she escapes from prison and raises an army, mm. but is then defeated in battle. Mm. And she flees to England, hoping that Elizabeth I would help her recover the throne. The final error. It, in, in your opinion, if she hadn't done that, do you reckon she could have feasibly mounted another army well the the sort of civil war in scotland does go on for another six years despite the fact that she isn't there yeah. so you think well maybe she's stuck around she'd have had a much better opportunity and she wouldn't have been obviously in prison in england i guess the question is would she have been able to securely get to it? support or would she have been more likely to be killed if she was caught by the scots than spending her time yeah. in england maybe more likely to have in a weird way to have received english support from Elizabeth, if she'd stayed in Scotland. Even though she's Catholic? Even though she's Catholic. Because she has the same approach to um, Elizabeth of not looking inside men's hearts and all that sort of stuff. And it's William Cecil, Elizabeth's advisor, who is obsessed primarily with religion, whereas Elizabeth very much believes in the proper order of succession, regardless of the religion. Right. She thinks the blood is more important. That's a good, that's a good what if, isn't it? Mm. She'd have stayed in Scotland, stayed alive. But instead, she ends up under house arrest for 19 years in England until in 1587 she is finally executed for her role in a plot against Elizabeth I. Oh, poor old Mary. Hmm. But four dramatic lives. Gosh, yeah. Interestingly, two out of four of them uh, abdicate. Oh, yeah. One of them voluntarily, the other less so. Yeah. But those are the only two in Scottish history that abdicate, and they both manage to be grand finalists. Yeah. And uh, the other one, a big death in battle. Yeah. Uh, this chap, big battle, no mm -hmm. death. But also interesting, they all suffer quite terrible defeats at certain points. So Constantine twice survives 
mm. terrible defeat to Athelstan, but is able to retire. James the Fourth suffers terrible defeat and is killed. Mary was exiled and then executed. Robert the Bruce was able to return to greater glory after yeah. his initial yeah. defeat when he was forced to run away. Yeah, it is possible to be a great and get to defeat. So, mm. you know, all you heavyweight champs out there, you know, you can, don't have to have that perfect record. Yeah. Chin up. Or oh, down. Keep it into your chest and arms up. <laughs> Battleiness! So, bottom for Battleiness, Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah, naturally. She got just 7.5 out of 20 mm. for this. Um, she does, surprisingly, though, have some plus points. Uh, first off, there was the Huntley Rebellion in 1562, yeah. where she raises an army uh, against a Catholic rebellion, ironically, um, took him the Ness Castle, and then her half-brother defeated uh, the said Earl Huntley in battle. Her half-brother? Yes, yeah, so a legitimate half-brother. Oh. Um, in 1565, perhaps a real highlight for her was the Chaseabout Raid. Protestant nobles uh, rebelled after she married Lord Darnley. So Mary, again, raises a very large army and then is riding at the head of this army wearing a steel cap and bearing a pistol. Uh, chasing Protestants? Protestant re- uh, rebel lords. Right. Not just any. <laughs> it's not fox was... hunting. <laughs> <laughs> and chasing them all across Scotland until eventually they're forced to flee to England. And mm. even John Knox admitted she was courageous. Yeah, which is saying a lot, because he was hard work. And she does show uh, great bravery in times of crisis. Um, When her secretary was murdered in front of her, and she was six months pregnant, and she was then effectively kind of held captive in the Mm. palace where she was, um, she managed to escape via an underground passage and then rode 25 miles to be with her supporters. She rode 25 miles? Through the night, um, stopping on occasion to vomit, given that she was six months pregnant. On her own? And with uh, her husband and a couple of right. underlings, but nevertheless, that's a... Goodness me. And then after she was forced to abdicate, she was imprisoned in a castle on uh, an island in Loch Leven. Um, but she won over the steward, who then sabotaged all but one of the boats oh. on the island, and then they go off, obviously, in the only one that is working, and then she rides off, raises a huge army, and marches towards Dumbarton. Brilliant. And she said, we noted how Elizabeth I had this very cautious wait-and-see attitude. Mary likes to do something. Mm. She likes to take control mm. of events and be decisive, one way or the other. Mm. Against her, mm. unfortunately, quite big against her, 1567, the Battle of Carberry Hill, there was a long standoff between her and the other nobles who don't like the fact that she married Bothwell. Her support was gradually slipping away through the day, and in the end she negotiated for Bothwell to escape uh, in return for her surrendering, and ultimately she has to abdicate without a shot even being fired. That's the one bit I really don't like, Mm. because I don't understand the relationship with Bothwell. Again, to draw the comparison with Elizabeth first, Elizabeth was all about the career as monarch, yeah. <laughs> not love. And it seemed like that that was that was uh, Mary's weakness, mm. was the love side of things. And she threw it all away at that point. Mm. It could... Rubbish. Then the next year, we have the Battle of Langside. So after she escapes, and she's now without Bothwell, mm. her half-brother, uh, the Earl of Murray, had inferior numbers, but he ambushes Mary's army on the way to Dumbarton. Mm. And unfortunately, Mary's commander was either ill and or incompetent. Her supporters suffer a terrible defeat, and after that, she makes the fateful decision to go to England rather than staying to fight on in Scotland. Uh, a point of clarification. Her half-brother ambushed her. Yes. Illegitimate. Uh, a legitimate half-brother who had helped her at the start. 
helped her early on, but he was one of the Protestant rebels in the Chase About raid that okay. was chased out of Scotland. But he'd come back, but then... He knew which way the wind was blowing. Mm. Next up, James the Fourth. Mm-hmm. He scored 12.5 out of 20. Ooh, close. Mm. Um, so, in his favour, the 1488 Rebellion, as we said, he was the putative head of the Rebellion, which saw his father defeated at Sockyburn. Details are sketchy, but ultimately James III is killed and James IV becomes king. Lord of the Isles, from 1488 to uh, 93, James set about uh, taking control of that area, the Western Isles, forfeited the title to the crown, mm. and took a large fleet to receive homage from all the local lords. Mm. And then in 1507, when it all kicked off again, he captured Donald Duff and Stornoway Castle and ended the rebellion. Mm. Job done. Brilliant, actually, isn't it? There's so many loose ends that are tied up in his reign. Mm. Good. As we said, Perkin Warbeck was claiming to be one of the princes in the Tower. James needed leverage in his negotiations with England Mm. and Spain, so he backed Perkin Warbeck, led an invasion of northern England. The invasion didn't particularly come to anything, but it wasn't really meant to from James's perspective. He wasn't bothered about Perkin becoming king, um, because he got what he actually wanted. England and Scotland agree a peace deal, and Henry VII gives his eldest daughter in marriage to James. It's fantastic, that. Absolutely brilliant. Now, we love the sort of um, the sort of grand medievalness that people sort of love about history quite a lot of the time, and James loves it as well. He celebrates all the medieval ideals. He loved bravery, glory, pageantry. 1507, there's an international three-day tournament that he hosts, and he personally defeated various knights who'd come across Europe to fight in it. Oh, I sort of so much associate that with um, Edward III. It's very much it. that kind of thing, but it's almost a sort of a last hurrah. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of a, like a uh, a nineties take on the sixties. How everyone's going back yeah. to that? <laughs> it's the Britpop of the sixties yes! century. <laughs> exactly, Britpop. That's what I mean. Um, we have the Scottish Navy under James the Fourth. He founded two new harbours, having personally selected the optimum locations, and he then sent then spent thousands and thousands of pounds building magnificent ships. And the Great Michael was mm. the largest of them all, and indeed the largest warship in Europe at the time. Presumably the world. Mm. Uh, and he built, hired, or captured 38 ships. So Scotland at this point was a major player on the European scene because that size of navy, mm. that has diplomatic clout. Yeah. I just, I said it at the time, I remember saying it, I just can't associate them with the navy. Yeah. Which is weird since all the Royal Navy ships have been like, made in <laughs> yeah. Scotland for years. But it just seems odd. I always associate that as being a sort of, a necessary thing for the English because yeah. of the proximity to the France and the Channel and stuff. Mm. But there's loads of islands, isn't there? Yeah. Mm. 1513 campaign when he invaded northern England. Um, he'd got um, something like 30,000 men and lots of heavy siege guns. So it's probably the largest and best prepared army Scotland had ever actually invaded England with. Mm. And along the way, he captures Norham, Ethel and Ford castles. And then at the Battle of Flodden, James died in the thick of the fighting, apparently within a spear length of the rival English commander, after leading them in this sort of last Homeric charge, perhaps realising that the battle was lost, a little like Richard III wow. at Bosworth. And he's the last king to die in battle in the British Isles. Rex fact? Mm. Who was the last English king? Richard III. Oh, yeah. Against James... Heroic as it was, the Battle of Flodden is a terrible, terrible defeat for Scotland, perhaps the worst uh, in their history. 
they've got superior position initially, superior numbers as well, but outmaneuvered by the English. They've got these brand new Swiss pikes, which is a very, very long mm. uh, things, but they weren't really very well trained in using them, so they weren't able to keep formation in boggy conditions. That is the worst weapon to have mm. if you're not trained in it. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't know the first thing to do or really how to hold it. You'd be worse than not having it at all. Yeah. Uh, and James, as I said, killed along with many lords, knights, thousands of soldiers and archbishops. He was outfoxed by the rival leader, Surrey, at the start. Should have attacked straight away, mm. but let the English move into a better position. And he did have a reputation for putting himself in danger. He was unable to direct the course of the battle. Mm. As I said, there's a major battle. Uh, a generation of nobles are killed. And unfortunately, that glorious navy never actually did anything and ended up being sold after James's. No rain way. To sort of pay off all their debts and sort stuff out. Oh, no. Second place for mm. battliness in this group, Constantine II with a score of 14 out of 20. Oh, that's the one that was close. Sorry, I was looking at the wrong one. Yeah. yeah. Okay, got it. 904 inflicted a major defeat on the Vikings and killed their leader, a grandson of Ivor the Boneless. Yeah. First major victory for the Scots against the Vikings, it avenged his cousin and predecessor who'd been killed by them, and ensured no major invasion from the Vikings for the rest of his very long reign. It's the biggest threat during that couple mm. of centuries, isn't it, the Vikings? That, I don't think that can be overplayed. 918 at Corbridge, Constantine defeated three of Ragnall's battalions, the Viking leader, um, but was ambushed by a hidden fourth battalion. Mm. Sneaky, sneaky Vikings. Some sources claim a Scottish victory, others claim uh, a Viking one, but probably it's a bit of a draw. Ragnall remains in uh, York, but the Scots don't suffer any major losses, and they still effectively have that buffer state, the northern bit of Northumbria, which is probably what Constantine wanted. Yeah, exactly. He wanted to maintain the status quo, so had to fight this battle to maintain it. Mm. If he'd have won it, it'd have still retreated. He didn't win it, retreated, and it was sort of a victory. And he has um, this incredible status as a protector. He is genuinely one of the most powerful, perhaps the second most powerful figure in the British Isles in this period. Initially, we got Earl Dredd of Benicia coming to him for support against the Vikings. Mm. Then in 927, the Vikings took refuge in Scotland for looking for protection against Athelstan. Yeah. As I said, when he became king in 900, Scotland is still in a very embryonic state in danger of being overrun by Vikings. You think if Constantine had been killed in that battle... Yeah, where would they be then? Yeah, it could have very easily. The Scots could have just gone up there and settled that as I think Scots. The Vikings could Mm. have easily gone up there and stormed and settled that in to escape Athelstan. Mm. However, by the nine tens, instead Constantine is actually taking the battle to the Vikings, and in the nine thirties, he's leading the Vikings in a coalition against the English. Yeah. Incredible turnaround. Those two strong kings from the north and from the south, squeezing the Vikings in the middle, eventually pop they. And so we see a lot of wily diplomacy intervening in Northumbria on behalf of Eldred to attempt a buffer state in Benicia and then allying with the Vikings to use Northumbria itself and York as a buffer mm. against the English. He's a major player for decades and despite you know being defeated a few times, he's never actually brought down. Mm. And he ends up being the leader of this grand coalition at Brunenburg in this epic battle, this known as the Great Battle for a Hundred Years. They... That's it's funny, isn't it? They both, both James the Fourth and Constantine, lose the epic battle. Mm. Not just losing a battle like Robert the Bruce mm. to then come back and yeah, and uh, it's not a skirmish which you have to yeah run away from. It's proper huge 
the one of their times. Yeah. But Constantine survives, crucially. Mm. That was the error James made. Yeah. <laughs> Against Constantine, um, he is dictated to by Athelstan at Penrith in 97 and Siren Sester in 935 in terms of peace treaties and yeah. recognising his superiority. In 934, Athelstan launches his huge invasion of Scotland, the first invasion of Scotland by England. Yeah. Um, by land, he gets to Aberdeen, and by sea, to Caithness. Where's that? Literally the top. Oh, right. So does he then land and then come down? Well, he goes up by land, and he goes also round by the sea. So he's doing his two a a little sort bit. of separate, yeah. Um, Constantine did well to avoid battle and full-out conquest, but it's quite a humiliating mm. demonstration of who's in charge. As I said, Brunenberg, um, Constantine's own son, is killed in the battle, and Athelstan is victorious despite this grand alliance. Yeah. Yeah, well, we gave Ethelstan plenty of points for that. We did indeed. But, you know, it's like you were saying, it's that funny thing with Constantine where you're sort of celebrating the defeats and successes. Yeah. But particularly if you look at this fact of battliness, I suppose in a way diplomatically he comes out on top most of the time. But top for battliness, though, is Robert the Bruce. Yeah. 20 out of 20. That's the most you can get. Um, we have a civil war in Scotland from 1306 to 1309. Um, he spends years defeating his rivals. We have these dramatic sort of mountainside battles. He expels uh, the common leadership at Inverurie in 1308, which really establishes him as dominant amongst the Scots. And then from 1310 to 14, he has to go about recapturing Scottish castles that are garrisoned by the English. Yeah, what a film that could be. So Bruce himself led an assault on Perth Castle, and he had these this sort of band of brothers, these great uh, leaders who were very effective as well. So the Black Douglas captured Roxburgh Castle with uh, his men pretending to be cows. <laughs> uh, Randolph captured Edinburgh Castle going up secret path in the rocks at night. And the last one was Stirling, which he besieges, and that's why Edward II comes up to relieve the siege of Stirling. We have... The Battle of Bannockburn. Yeah. Now, on the first day, a chap called Sir Henry de Bowen, an English knight, saw Robert the Bruce isolated on a small horse, arm, horse armed only with an axe, and he charges, fully armoured with a lance, charges at Robert the Bruce. Bruce takes him on, avoids the lance at the last moment, ah. gets out of the way, raises himself up on the horse, and then swipes and cleaves the skull of de Bowen, killing him. Wow. And when criticised by his generals for taking such a risk, he said his only regret was breaking his favourite axe. I'm surprised he didn't have a go at them for saying, well, why was I isolated? <laughs> why were you like... He was just wandering the fields. And I guess an English sort of scouting party obviously mm. came across them and this guy, fully armoured, thinks, hoo Yeah, I recognise him from the Ace of Clubs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so then on the second day, we have the battle itself, and the Scots enforced a very narrow front, which prevented the English army deploying its troops fully. Uh, the archers, the English archers, or the Welsh archers, yeah. taken out by Scottish cavalry. And heavy, heavy fighting um, and the death of various leaders see the English trapped between the Scots and the river, and the English lose something like 11,000 men, and many nobles are taken prisoner, and it's perhaps the... Well, no, it is the greatest and most famous victory in Scottish military history. After that, he does other things as well. His brother gets recognised as the High King of Ireland oh. when the Scots invade, and that helps prevent a Western invasion of Scotland mm. by the English. Edward II was sent running from Bannockburn. In 1319, he tried to retake Berwick from the Scots with about 10,000 men, but the Scots 
charge at York and defeat a local militia and Edward is forced to withdraw. Then in 1322, he's got about 20,000 men, Edward, coming north, but once again, Bruce wastes the lands and then chases them as they retreat and have to abandon um, all of his goods and indeed abandon his wife, who is forced to escape by boat. And then finally, 1327, Edward III, but really Roger Mortimer, mm. was undone when attempting to invade Scotland by a nighttime raid into the camp. And indeed, uh, teenage Edward III's uh, tents had their ropes cut and the tent falls on him, <laughs> which he did not enjoy. No, no. And England have to acknowledge Scotland as independent. How much is it that Edward II is rubbish in comparison to Robert the Bruce being great? Well, that's certainly a, a valid point that he isn't doing this against Edward I and he isn't yeah. doing it against Edward III in his prime. Yeah. But, you know, Roger Mortimer's no mug. Yeah. You know, you've got to take advantage of uh, yeah. these situations. And As they say in boxing, you only beat the man put in front of you. Indeed. Against Robert the Bruce, he never quite managed to capture Edward II uh, or force Edward II to actually come to terms. So he kept invading northern England. Oh, yeah. But Edward wouldn't actually acknowledge him and if it and he came close so many times to getting edward ii if he just pulled that off it really would have been oh yeah imagine that what would you say is the best moment from the battliness there for each uh standing up in the horse and taking a chap's head off with an axe i mean that's pretty awesome that's pretty awesome and then the next day leading the scots to the biggest yeah. victory in, yeah. in their history i would say a close second would be James the Fourth, even though he's got less points, mm. with his tying up of loose ends, massive great navy, and coming within uh, spear's mm. length. That heroic final yeah. charge. It's pretty good. I mean, you know, I view all of these through my <laughs> incredibly delicate uh, director's lens. Yeah. And I think those two would make the best uh, films mm. that I would watch. So those two, thank you very much. Constantine does have Vikings, of course. Yeah, you, yeah. We just don't have a description Vikings. of it. Yeah, and it would look great on screen, but the reason I liked him more was the diplomatic side, and I felt like I was, di I was giving him more points for defeats that turned out to be victories mm. and all that kind of stuff. Mary, obviously the least successful, and perhaps notable that in many ways her most dramatic moments are sort of escapes almost rather yeah. than... <laughs> yeah. Who would win in battle if you put these four against each other and take out, obviously, having cannons? <laughs> I tell you, I'd, I'd really like to see James versus uh, Robert. Hmm. Really would. Um, and it's just, it's one of those things, the boxing analogy is coming thick and fast today, but uh, it, it feels like it's uh, speed and movement of hmm. James the Fourth versus slow power of Robert the Bruce. And... It's always slow power that has won recently, so <laughs> I'll go with Robert the Bruce. But yeah, if we're looking at them on a uh, <clears throat> on if their powers mm. are rated next to each other, he'd, I think Robert the Bruce would be like Mario. Yeah. If on Mario Kart, you choose him for the best all rounder. Yeah, and the others have specific skills which could get unstuck because they have to <laughs> make it up in other areas. <laughs> scandal. So bottom of the group is scandal. Constantine the second. Mm. I'm afraid he got a big fat zero for scandal. Really? Can't really even dress this up as I mean, all we had was the fact that Athelstan said that he was bad for making alliances with pagan Vikings. Mm. 
and he's also a bit crafty. All these shifting alliances. One point he's fighting against the Vikings, and he's allying with them against Athelstan. The Saxons even dub him the Wily One. Mm. Mm. But you know, Athelstan started off the reign by making a marriage alliance with the Vikings. It's just diplomacy. Yeah, I think that's fine. And there's no evidence of untoward bedroom activity. Well, he can't expect anything other than zero, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that is indeed zero. More controversial Mm. is Mary Queen of Scots, who only got five out of 20. She certainly is. Uh, But controversial that she only got five for scandal from us. Yeah, Um, because we we thought we were being balanced, and it turned Mm. out we went too far the other way. Yeah, and there is a lot to say. Um, In terms of her being a femme fatale, we've got a French poet found hiding under her bed in 1563. I mean... How could she talk away out of that one? Lord Darnley, um, her second husband, was also her first cousin. And they hadn't bothered to wait for any papal dispensation. Mm. There was a rumour that she was sleeping with uh, Rizzio, who was her Italian musician and secretary. Yeah. So a French poet and an Italian musician. It's not looking good, is it? She scandalised Europe by marrying Bothwell, the man accused of murdering her husband. Yeah. And uh, she was accused by Bess of Hardwick when she was exiled in England of having an affair with Bess's fourth husband, the Earl of Shrewsbury. Yeah, that is pretty tasty. And of course, we've got the death of Lord Darnley, her second husband. Oh, yes. He was ill and recuperating in Glasgow, but Mary persuades him to come to Holyrood, near to Edinburgh. And on the night of the murder, she remembered that she had to attend a servant's wedding and left. She still attended the wedding after he died, delayed putting the court into official mourning for five days and denied him a state funeral. Yeah. And, of course, married the man who was accused of murdering him. Yeah, and... And how... <laughs> how could... How is that not scandalous? What were the arguments against? French poet was probably stalking her. Yeah. No, no I mean the Darnley death. Well, yeah. No evidence of the affair with Riccio. Possibly was mm. kidnapped by Bothwell. Mm. if not indeed raped so is she just a victim of that circumstance that she's almost been forced to marry the man suspected of and he was the only one really that was looking out for her yeah so even if it's bad politics she thinks her life's in danger he's the only one she feels she can trust yeah doesn't mean she killed him uh, killed Darnley just means that she's had to make her an alliance that doesn't look good but she's gone along with that she in my eyes, she has said, why don't we go on a little, you know, little get to, getaway together <laughs> to Holyrood, sends him there, puts, you know, on, it was gunpowder, wasn't it? Yeah, well, gunpowder, but he got out of the house before then, so then he was just suffocated in the garden. I mean, <laughs> come off it. And meanwhile, she says, oh, I forgot, forgot this blasted wedding, I must go. <laughs> and then all that lack of uh, uh, mourning, it's uh, it's massive. I can't believe she got five. That is mental. Second place, Robert the Bruce, who got 16 out of 20. God, so we're saying that Robert the Bruce here is 11 points more scandalous mm. than Mary. Well, I suppose the difference with Robert the Bruce is that he has a verifiable scandal. There's no ums and ahs about it. It definitely happened and although there's not loads of it he does tick the boxes that need to be ticked Mm. bedroom antics Mm. at least five illegitimate children that are acknowledged by robert the bruce by different women Mm. um and it's possible that his ill health 
uh, was actually due to him having the pox or a sort of venereal disease. So he's putting it about. Yeah. He's not very trustworthy. 1296, he was fighting for Edward I against John Balliol. Yeah. 1297, he switches sides. Yeah. But then he submits. 1299, he became a guardian of Scotland. 1302, submits again to Edward. 1304, when England has got to make peace, he isn't trusted by Edward or Common, i.e. England and Scotland both think, oh, this guy's a bit dodgy. Yeah. No one wants anything to do with him. And then how does he become king? In 1306, he arranges a meeting with his biggest rival and most powerful noble in Scotland, John Common. They meet in a church, they argue, and then Bruce stabs him. Mm-hmm. at the high altar of a church, <laughs> and then his supporters run in and finish coming off. So this most powerful noble in Scotland killed at the high altar of a church, precipitating a civil war in Scotland. It's a bit Henry II, isn't it? Hmm. So not lots to say, but we've got treachery, murder, and adultery. I, In my comparison to Mary here, I'm going to go with the murder of Darnley. So that ticks the common box. Not by her hand not in a church (laughs) not in a church but elaborate nonetheless yeah i suppose the femme fatale side is a bit that i'm not totally sure about with her that's where you think it's maybe slander against yeah her because she's a woman but we have definite proof of bruce so maybe bruce yeah does have slightly more but i don't think it's 11 (laughs) points no (laughs) yeah i think it's, it's more like 11 to 10 yeah but the top man for scandal was James the Fourth, who got seventeen out of twenty. That's me. Um, and again, it's one of those where it's not a lot to say, but he ticks quite big boxes. Mm. In fourteen eighty eight, we have potential patro regicide. He is the head of the rebellion that sees his father James the Third killed. Oh, yeah. And the official inquiry, perhaps a little suspiciously, concluded that James the Third had happened to be slain. <laughs> And James the Fourth wore an iron chain in penance at Easter for the rest of his life. Around his neck? Uh, around his belt. Waist. His belt, his waist, yeah. Mm. The Archbishopric of St Andrews. 1497, he appoints his younger brother as the Archbishop, which invalidates said brother's claim to the throne, but also because he was young, James got to keep all of the estates and revenues for himself. Yeah. And then in 1504, when his brother died, James appointed... James appointed his illegitimate 11-year-old son as the archbishop so that he could keep it going. Oh, it's magic, that, isn't it? Absolutely <laughs> wonderful. And he also, of course, has numerous mistresses, resulting in about seven illegitimate children. And indeed, when Margaret Tudor uh, married him and came to Scotland, she found at Stirling Castle a nursery housing all of his illegitimate <laughs> brood. <laughs> Nobles, apparently early on in his reign, maintained the minority by plying him with women, and he enjoyed the company of prostitutes. Right. Okay. So, quick summary. Yeah. Uh, it seems like for the Constantine I'm writing off, there's nothing yeah, there. Yeah, he did not get it done. That's rubs. So, we've got, broadly, a murder, a plotting, and bedromantics in yeah. all three. Yeah. Bedromantics, James IV, massive tick. You could sort of say the plotting was about him keeping it in the family with the whole 11-month-old... 11, 11 uh, I mean, his 11-year-old son. Is not it's, a bit, it almost, it's a bit cheekier. It's a bit cheekier. Like, it's a bit corrupt, but for, yeah. given the time, not yeah. that bad. Uh, and the patro-regicide, again, not with his own hand, we're to assume. No, and probably not even necessarily of his own making. 
Right, just head of the rebellion. Yeah. So I, so that's a sort of bracketed one, mm. and the plotting is, is just a bit cheeky, as you say. Mm. I think actually, Mary Queen of Scots and James the Fourth are more on a level, mm. and possibly Mary further ahead with the plotting because it's not as cheeky. Yeah. Robert the Bruce top for me. I suppose if we were to say who would make the front pages. If they all did it on the same day, yeah, <laughs> who'd be front page of the next Excellent day? Excellent test. Um, I mean, Mary probably gets an immediate advantage as the woman. There's obviously more red top papers here. Yeah, yeah, it would be more. Yeah, it would be Mary because actually, James the Fourth man expected to have lots of affairs, does and looks after them quite well. Though a little expose into his sort of illegitimate nursery. Yeah. <laughs> at Stirling yeah, Castle. Yeah, sort of someone employed by the um mirror yeah. as their nanny with a little secret camera. I suppose the common murder does have such a massive impact on the nation state yeah. and the affairs of the nation. The fact that he then runs off and becomes king afterwards. Yeah. He's not just a man he killed whilst king, it's the most powerful noble that he killed to become king. I think the common murder mm. would make the front page of the broadsheets yeah. because <laughs> slightly more serious journalism would see it as uh, how impactful it is on future events. Yeah, The red tops would definitely go for cheeky Mary Queen of Scots and show her sort of getting out of a taxi on an awkward <laughs> angle or something. Kills Darnley, goes off on mm. a wedding and they put it in inverted commas. So proper scandal, Robert would win. Uh, juicy scandal, Mary. Subjectivity. So, Mary, Queen of Scots, bottom scoring for subjectivity, just mm. six out of 20. Mm. Um, in many ways, for Mary, it's really all a kind of about intention and potential rather than actual outcomes. Mm. Um, her contemporaries noted uh, she was very charming in person, um, in person with individuals, but also on crap. Uh, also with crowds so mm. she went on tour early in her personal rule in Scotland and won a lot of people over because mm. um, they're just dazzled by this very cultured and charming glamorous woman yeah um, she oversees a renaissance court um, greatest patronage since James II 20 knighthoods and 5 earls were created oh, at her in wedding a short time mm. And Mary's very much at the centre. She's a patron of poets and musicians. She ensures lots of dancing at court. It's all very glamorous, very fun. We've got dressing up, games and feasting. Mm. It's what you want to see. Definitely. I love her dressing up. And on her return, there is evidence of good rules. She had got these really unprecedented challenges after the Protestant Reformation, something no other Scottish monarch has had to face at that yeah. time. Yeah. Um, but she attempts a middle course. She doesn't have any allies, but she just tries to make it work. So she stays Catholic, but accepts that the nation is now Protestant. Yeah, I like so that. she has the balance of Protestants and Catholics in her council. And she's got this French dowry as well, which meant she's paying for her own household. So she's got all this glamour and parting going on, mm. but it's not actually costing the Scottish people any mm. money at all. Mm. Mm. So for a few years, it's really pretty good. Mm. And if she'd been able to secure recognition as the successor in England, maybe it would have lasted. Stay alive in Scotland, Mary. That's what you should have done. Unfortunately, 1565 to 67, things go pretty downhill. The Darnley marriage um, leads to the balance of power being disturbed. The chase about raid, the crisis after the murder of her secretary Rizzio, Darnley's assassination. If she is innocent, it's handled very badly. Mm. And then marrying Bothwell ultimately it's a civil war and her abdication 
So after a good start in two years, it really goes very, very wrong. Mm. And arguably, she's got a lot to answer for there. Yes, yes. That I mean, it was good for a short period of time, but... And she only actually rules in person for about six years and then is made to abdicate. So most of her life was as an exile in France at the start and then a prisoner in England at the end. Yeah, and a lot of that six years was chaos. Yeah, and there's no real legacy or no. great achievement no. to speak of there. Much better is Robert the Bruce. Yeah. He scores 15.5 out of 20. God, that is high, isn't it? Very high score, but only third in the uh, in the grand final. Sure. He's the first to hold near-annual parliaments in Scotland, largely because he needs the consent of the community for treat- treaties and taxation, etc., because of the way that he comes to the throne. Mm. Scottish independence is perhaps his... Uh, greatest legacy edward the first had taken it away taken the crown from the scots um and this is really since 1286 it's not been certain exactly how it's all going to pan out but robert the bruce reasserts independence and secures scotland security at the battle of bannockburn mm. and then with the treaty of edinburgh northampton in 1328 forced a peace treaty with edward the third which saw him recognized as king scottish independence also recognised by England, and indeed a marriage between Robert the Bruce's son and Edward II's daughter, so Edward III's sister. But this treaty... Yeah. Um, I know Edward III didn't like it. He didn't. So, yeah, so as a downside, Robert the Bruce's son, David II, is only a boy, so he ends up facing a vengeful Edward III, and the brutal wars continue, mm. and so it's not very long-lasting, this mm. treaty. Um. And also, it comes at quite a cost. There's great deprivation in Scotland. 20 years of war, and then in 1306, Robert starts it all off again, just as peace has been signed. And the guerrilla warfare tactics that he uses, where they're basically burning lots of the land, destroying the castles once they capture them. Mm. Very effective, but brutal for, you know, particularly in the lowlands of Scotland. Yeah. Really, really horrific. Right, yeah. So the it, the country's united, but it's unstable in that it's at war and it's broke because it's at war. Mm. Mm. You say Edward II had vic- taken the Scottish crown, or that's more realistically Edward I, <laughs> and had 20 years of peace as a subject, I'd have preferred going to buy my apples at the market, thinking, oh, not off to war again this weekend, that's nice, mm. than thinking I'm a true Scotsman but I'm going to have a sword in my stomach. When you're looking back in the grand annals of history, do you celebrate the Vichy regime or do you celebrate <laughs> Charles de Gaulle? <laughs> Not to compare Edward I to... I, will, I, was, going, I was going for a standless comparison. Of, like, no, I don't want to do that. In terms of finances, to ensure the support of the nobles and reward his uh, followers, he has to hand out a lot of land and titles, which really diminishes royal prosperity. Mm. So his income is less than it was under Alexander III. Mm. And it took over 100 years for the Stuart monarchs to actually really be able to get to the point where the crown is definitively above the nobles rather than kind of being just another... First monkey, of course. But, you know, he does secure independence. He does get the kingship restored he does actually govern the country pretty effectively despite everything that's going on yeah i think that's the difference between him and mary is that he does actually do it whereas mary arrives and everything's fine and it goes terribly wrong mm. everything's terribly wrong wrong when uh um bruce arrives and he settles it down yeah uh 
Which is better. And also, in terms of uh, legacy, we've got the Declaration of Arbroath in 1320. The English had got the Pope to excommunicate the Scottish leaders because the Pope wanted a crusade, and the English were like, oh, these Scots keep on fighting us for some reason. Mm. Better excommunicate them. Mm. So they reassert their independence to the Pope and the world, and this incredible rhetoric, which uh, still stands very strong, includes, for so long as only a hundred of us stand, we will never yield to the dominion of England. We fight not for glory, nor for wealth, nor honour, but for that freedom which no good man surrenders, but with his life. Mm. Wow. But you'll never take our freedom! (laughs) In second place was Constantine II. Yep. He got 17 out of 20. Big. Now, the previous four monarchs um, had all been killed in Scotland, two of them by Vikings, and indeed Constantine's father, Ayeth, had been overthrown in a coup. We think. Constantine, (laughs) as far as anyone can remember. Constantine II, however, has his very long reign with no evidence of internal instability whatsoever. As you said, once the Vikings were defeated, um, a chronicler said it was long after this before either Danes or Norwegians attacked the Scots, but they enjoyed peace and tranquility. Yeah, and that's what you want, isn't it? This mm. uh, just just no Vikings at this stage. Yeah, that'd be great. No Vikings, thanks. <laughs> um, presumably, there are a lot of divisions in Scotland after we'd had Ieth overthrown. This chap Girick came in, and then Girick is overthrown. Mm. So at Schoon in 906, this ceremony that Constantine has with church and state, it's probably not only forging that church and state link, but also bringing together the sort of different mm. regimes and rivalries and uniting them mm. again as one proper figure it also establishes schoon as a royal center and possibly that's the beginning of it as the uh, coronation oh right area so in the church he establishes st andrews as the uh, chief bishopric of the nation which remains mm. uh, and then he also has uh, mormers created and these are earldoms so this is the first time we've got a more formal structure to governance in the localities mm. so you've got the earl of whatever peri- uh, whatever area he reports to the king he sorts the local stuff out well, that's quite a good structure. So that's more what was going on in England. Yeah, and there's a foundation he creates which grows under his successors. Mm. And it's vital for the creation of Scotland. It's the first time the word Scotland and the word Scots are used in English sources hmm. in his reign. The first treaty and the first war between England and Scotland. And the defeat of the Vikings' resistance against Athelstan. It's this long period in which Scotland's borders remain very stable. Oh, so actually the first time, in my mind, we're, there's always war between England and Scotland. Hmm. But actually, there's only war between England and Scotland when Scotland becomes an entity. Hmm. Which is and England. Guy. Yeah, yeah, about the same time. Yeah. And when that first happens, you've got this good man on the case who actually is very good at maintaining the borders. And it's crucial the fact that he reigns for so long yeah. that you have this incredible stability that Scotland had not enjoyed Allowing the idea of Scotland and Scots to ferment. Yeah. Mm. Against him, uh, we do have the Vikings doing a bit of raiding, but he does then defeat them, and they don't raid afterwards. Mm. More significant is Athelstan invading in 934, going very deep into Scotland. Mm. Now, there is no actual battle recorded, but presumably he might have done a bit of plundering and looting along the way. Yeah, it's to be expected. And, you know, we've been celebrating his sort of canny and wily victories, but he does ultimately get defeated at Brunanburh. His son is killed, 
Did this break him as a man? Is that why he abdicated? Or did it lose him support at court, leading to him being pushed out by his mm. nephew? Mm. Mm. Well, we've gone through why I think that's it. Mm. Why we think that's a victory. But it doesn't detract from his subjectivity to me. Mm. In that it... it what, how, I can't remember how I described it. Taking the sting or it, or it allowed the status quo to continue, which yeah. is what we want here. Mm. Yeah. Top of the group is James IV with a score of 19 out of 20. Mm. Um, unlike his father, he regularly traversed uh, the country. He was seen by lots of people. He reorganised civic courts and um, was seen to dispense justice in person, mm. which is always a nice thing. Yep. A 1496 Education Act made landowners send their sons to school so they would be conversant in the law, mm. so the quality of the lawmakers improves under James. Um, he's also renowned, which is important for the time, as a very pious king. Mm. Just said he receives the blessed sword and hat from the Pope. Mm. He made regular pilgrimages on foot to sacred locations. Mm. Though equally, typically with James, um, he always took friends with him. Mm. He took lots of entertainers, so musicians and mm. jesters and whatnot, and would visit his mistresses along the way. Yeah, so whenever he went to visit a pilgrimage site, it would all, always be conveniently located near to a lady that he... <laughs> <laughs> So it's kind of like a sort of 15th century Glastonbury, really, these pilgrimages. It's not just a purely pious thing. But we really celebrate with James the Renaissance. Mm. So many wonderful things under James. The thistle emerges as Scotland's heraldic emblem. He spent lavishly on palaces and castles. It's the golden age of Scots poetry. So we have the Macars like Henderson, Dunbar and Douglas, which even you enjoyed a bit because we had those rap battles. Oh, right, yeah. I get it. it was giving Graham a look there. 1507, James um, gives a decree for Scotland's first ever printing press. Hmm. Also the first university me- medical faculty at Aberdeen. Wow. And in spare time, he's an amateur dentist. Oh, yes, brilliant. Paid people to let him practice on them. Oh, goodness. He granted a chap, John Damien, an alchemy workshop at Stirling and encouraged his experiments in attempting human flight. And James IV is also the first recorded whiskey drinker in history. These are these are outstanding Rex facts that on their own <laughs> yeah. would have doubled someone like Ayrton's score. Yeah. <laughs> but this is they're just coming thick and th- fast. Say he's this wonderful Renaissance uh, king. He's intelligent, charismatic, charming, popular with the nobles. There are no coups against James in this period. Mm, yeah. And he's also renowned for going around and speaking to ordinary people. Yeah. He could even speak with Highlanders in Gaelic. He was probably the last Scottish king to be able to speak Gaelic. Wow. Against him, um, he could be a bit arbitrary in his rule. As we said, he abuses church appointments just to get his own uh, his own money. Unprecedented acts of revocation where he basically just writes himself a blank cheque that everybody has to agree to <laughs> every now and again. Um, and, you know, he could be quite handed, but he got away with it because of his charm. But perhaps he might have run out of luck later on if the rain goes on and they start yeah. to... Yeah. have more difficult times. Like his predecessors, his arrogance proves his downfall. It's another unnecessarily early death. And Flodden ends this golden age. And it's not just James. It's a whole generation of nobles and soldiers and all sorts of people. It's almost like World War One. We see this glorious age just wiped out mm. in one fell swoop. And it was a battle he didn't really need to fight. Mm. I am surprised that Constantine got lower than James. I think James, without that, without Flodden, mm. because it was so dramatic, mm. fine, I can agree to that 19, but I think I'd have pulled it down to 17. I see Constantine and James on a par because of 
constantine stability which is the nature of subjectivity to me mm. whiskey's great <laughs> um thistles are nice you know it's things that we begin to recognize as very scottish mm. okay i see i've given i know i'm not going to give it away but i've given same points to both here to mm. and to the bottom two interesting one with this for um the grand final all of them try to be good rulers none of these are tyrants or serial killers yeah you know, even Mary, who ultimately doesn't really succeed at being yeah. a good ruler, but she shows that she wants to. She's yeah. heart's in the right place. Yeah. Just, just her head that's not. <laughs> I suppose the essence of subjectivity, whose reign would be the best to live in? Yeah, I mean, 20th century obvs, but um, uh, forgetting illness and medical advances. Mm. Constantine's, I reckon. Mm. No well, Vikings. No, yeah. No Vikings, but there were was the raids, but such stability. Uh, avoided unnecessary ta- taxation with James IV. Mm. And it's a sort of a golden age. Like, until after his reign, mm. it must be wonderful, really, I would have thought, James's reign. And how how long was his reign? I know we're going to come to that next, but was it a decent amount of time? Yeah, sort of 20-odd years. Oh, maybe that You'd have liked it to have been longer, though, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I can't separate the two. I... Hmm. Robert the Bruce is an interesting one because he's very much about the legacy. Yeah, there's not the much aftermath. in the time for me. Yeah, whereas James the Fourth, it's all about the here and now, but he mm. doesn't. Mm. Well, he leaves a sort of lot of symbolic stuff behind, but in terms of the stability of the country, mm. he kind of goes out in a bang, and consequently, it all goes to chaos again. Mm. Robert the Bruce, it's all really, really hard and tough. Yeah, but perhaps long term, he yeah. sort of saves the nation in if he'd have way, had it's... some time off and not died so early and yeah. actually been able to have a bit of a party and he might have found an interest in something <laughs> yeah. and bequeath that to the nation but <laughs> yeah tricky longevity so we're down to simple basic facts now mm. the shortest reign of all the grand finalists uh was robert the bruce 1306 1329 i would have thought it was mary Mm, it's 23 years uh 12 and a half out of 20 that score Mm. gives him he was 55 when he died Mm. mary queen of scots reigned from 1542 to 1567 Mm. she's 24.58 years a score of 13 Mm. and she was 44 when she died of course the thing with mary is that she's only six days old when she becomes king uh, queen yeah so actually she's only in her 20s when she's made to abdicate so she hasn't really started. And she only had six years of personal rule, but because she was six days old when she became queen, that is basically her entire life. They, you could argue that she only had six years of rule. You could. So in a way, actually, it's not as good a longevity as Robert the Bruce, given that Robert the Bruce is basically fighting battles every other weekend. Yeah, yeah. James the Fourth is next. Again, they're all quite similar, these. 1488 to 1513, 25 and a quarter years. Oh, there's nothing in it. There's one point separating all three. Then. Yeah, 13 and a half for James versus 12 and a half for Robert the Bruce. James is only 40 when he dies. Gosh, yeah, they're early starters. But the biggie is mm. Constantine II, 900 to 943. Mm. 43 years, 17 out of 20, and he's 78 wow. when he finally pops his clocks. Uh, so, but that means there were two or three more longer than him. Uh, it was, it was it William the Lion, I think, was slightly longer, and James the Sixth is the longest oh, of right, all. Yeah. But that's interesting. So Constantine the Second has the longest reign, and he's the longest lived, despite 
being the longest ago when you would thought <laughs> that they'd all be dead, yeah. you know, when they're 30 or something. Yeah, and at the start of the uh, the idea of Scotland when it's all Vikings. Yeah. When you, they were dropping like flies. Well, yeah, exactly. You think one of the first things he has to do is a major battle against the Vikings. Yeah. And then he has to spend 20 years, well, 10 years or whatever, fighting Athelstan. And, yeah, he has to spend a good proportion of this enormous amount of time making the intray. Mm. And yet, 43 years. Yeah, well done, that man. Dynasty, not the programme. So, Mary, Queen of Scots, bottom for Dynasty, just one legitimate surviving child. But what a child. James VI. Constantine II and James IV both had two surviving children. Mm-hmm. But it's Robert the Bruce who comes out on top here. Three surviving children for him. I'm surprised at James's score there. Well, yeah, I mean, two legitimate surviving yeah. children. Obviously, he had others mm. around. I mean, he had quite a few others who die. Mm. Legitimate ones that die young. But in terms of dynasty you could argue he's the one that secures the marriage that ultimately wins england for his descendants so in a way his is the biggest dynastic success albeit not by the number of legitimate surviving children that he had Mm. Mm. but in terms of raw numbers it's brucey that uh, pulls it out of the bag so there they all are of course they all had their x factor but the decision which you the listener now have to make is which one of them, above all others, above all the other Scots, has that certain something, that lasting legacy, that great achievement, the star quality that we call... Rex Factor! This is it, isn't it? It's not even... We've decided which four people... we decided who was the who had the Rex Factor out of the Scots. Yeah. We've now decided who was the most Rex Factor out of the Rex Factor winners. Mm. And it's now... Who is the top of those four? This is such a decision, guys. Now, in terms of raw scores, mm. Mary Queen of Scots is the bottom with 33.5. Mm. As you said, probably should be quite a bit hard for scandal, but mm. she does score quite low in all the others. Constantine the second got 52, which again was quite low. He was 11th of the 13, mm. but obviously he let himself down with scandal, but did pretty well elsewhere. James the fourth got 66, and yeah. our top seed, Robert the Bruce... 70 points. But there's not much between James and Robert. Not many points. No. Mm. But there's a lot more to consider than simply the scores. Um, let's think about some of those achievements. Who do you think's got the biggest headline achievement? If you had to put them down to one bullet point, who do you think stands oh, out? Bruce, isn't it? Mm. Bannockburn. Yeah. Um, James, I think... Or you could argue Constantine the Second creating Scotland, Scotland mm. defeats Vikings. Yeah. I think Vikings, since the Vikings were such a hassle for the English as well, mm. who weren't just you know seeing them off at every turn, uh, the Vikings were like the bogeyman for mm. both countries at that time, and they were both suffering. And this guy beat them. Mm. Whereas during Robert the Bruce's time, all about the English, and he beat them. I feel like it's a mm. they're on par. Mm. I suppose Robert the Bruce benefits from being a bit later and having this incredibly well recorded yeah. victory. And it's another similarity. Mm. Robert the Bruce reinstates Scotland as an independent nation. Yeah. And Constantine starts Scotland as an independent mm. nation. Both nation builders. James the Fourth, so many little bits and bobs that you think, oh, mm. oh I didn't know that. That's nice, didn't know that, but not a big headliner. It would be like uh, 
creating a lovely bank holiday that yeah. actually <laughs> on, the people on the street would really like. Yeah. But it's not, it's not the, uh, you're not going to remember a speech from it. No. I mean, it's, it's renaissance, I suppose, under him, and there's lots of fun stuff in that. Yeah. And it's just things don't last. Like, the Navy could have been this amazing yeah. thing that it doesn't last. It's all that sort mm. of stuff. He's, he's sort of almost like a Charles II type, mm. but Charles II did have restoring the monarchy. Yeah. James IV doesn't maybe have that, but he's got this great personality. He's got this golden age, yeah. Scotland, perhaps the greatest period to be in yeah. Scotland in the period that we're covering. Yeah. Maybe he's the one that actually you think, yes, if you could just pick pick a time and pick a man and just have that, maybe that's the one you'd actually go for. You yeah. appreciate what Constantine Robert the Bruce has done, mm. but maybe you'd actually... Yeah, because you hark not, to James. As we say, you want we always say you want them on the top of the hill with their sword held aloft. But the Rex factor isn't necessarily all about battles. Mm. It's not necessarily all about losing battles. You know that you can, as we've proved here, you can get the Rex factor and lose the battle. Mm. I mean, that a lot of these guys did, and so maybe it is providing something else. And you'd want to be. If you want to take a random five-year slice out of any of these people's reigns, mm. you're likely to land in a good bit with James. Yeah. <laughs> which would be nice. Yeah. Um, Mary, perhaps the one that has the least in terms of a lasting legacy and mm. great achievement, but perhaps well, the one that's got the star quality. Somehow, through all that chaos, yeah. she has the personality that that still scored so low, lowly in all of our uh, mm. points... So she certainly has that star quality. Mm, and she's still the story that so many people are mm. trying to do. And it's an amazing life story that mm. Mary has. She was very much involved in making that incredible story. Mm. And who do you think is the most compelling of the characters that we've got here? Because they're quite different in their own oh, ways. Quite different. Constantine, very wily. But maybe too... Um, too is it too foggy? And in the past... And it's a long time ago. We don't have great Con- descriptions of him. Yeah. I guess you just come... You get that sense of a wily... Mm, slight, achiever. Yeah, achiever working his way. You can imagine, like, in Game of Thrones, he wouldn't be a sort of a, you know, 30-year-old, good-looking... Yeah, definitely not, yeah. ...hero, but he's yeah. one of the ones that's still there mm. working his way through. Right in the end, he'd still be somehow in the room. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Robert the Bruce, very hardy. But did I say this at the time? I'm not sure if I can get hold of his personality. He may have confused you by the fact that apparently he read uh, romances to his soldiers whilst they were on manoeuvres. Like to entertain them. They'd be at the lock side waiting for battle. Oh, hang on. Hang on. Are we doing romances with inverted commas here? (laughs) That sounds far more likely. Are they all to amuse his soldiers? (laughs) Oh, brilliant. I wish you'd told me that before we scored them. Um... Oh, Graham. Graham, 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 Graham. Ali and I will put down our preferences um, in the event of a tie, but probably it's all going to be down to you, the listeners. You decide who you think should win Scottish Rex Factor. Will it be Constantine II for the creation of Scotland, the defeat of the Vikings and surviving Athelstan? Will it be Robert the Bruce for the Battle of Bannockburn, defeating Edward II, restoring the uh, Scottish nation and independence. Will it be James IV for the uh, the Renaissance and the Golden Age and that wonderful Scottish Navy and good times? Or will it be the incredible 
life story and charm of Mary, Queen of Scots. They've all got their pluses. They've all got their negatives. You will maybe be appealing to different sorts of things in terms of how you vote, but... It does have to come down to that vote. Pick your favourite. We will have the survey running for the whole of June. So the voting will come to a close at the end of June. So that's the 30th, that mm-hmm. last day. Midnight, or you know, 11.59, 59pm <laughs> on the 30th of June. And then it will be for us to reveal the winner of the Scottish Rex Factor series. Please, please, please do vote. We'd love yeah. to have as many people voting as possible. We'll Absolutely. share the links on raxfactor.wordpress.com, on Twitter, and on Facebook, where you can obviously message us and yeah. let us know what you think. It would also be lovely if you could support the podcast, uh, tell your friends about this show, and particularly encourage them to vote. If you'd like to help boost us generally, you can leave a review on iTunes or whatever your podcast subscription is, and subscribe. Helps us to get noticed. It really does. Leaving a review on itunes Mm. you just say that Mm. oh sorry um if you'd like to support us financially you can make a one-off donation via paypal or you can make a monthly donation click be my patron to join the rex factor privy chamber everybody who uh pays us on a monthly basis gets access to our privy chamber bonus episodes uh, which we do after each of our main episodes um we will be doing another privy chamber we were going to do it after the playoff results but then yeah. Ali was ill. I I I couldn't have done it for him. <laughs> no, no, you you did well to get through the. Uh, the I did results. well to drive home. <laughs> My word! And during the playoffs, up until the end of the thirtieth of June, privy councillors get to vote for the best death of all the Scottish monarchs. Yeah, we need your help there. And there's been there's, a lot of them. There's that is a tough crowd. Mm. And we've got some new privy councillors to welcome. Hello, Laura Coots, or Counts, Steve Beeston, Shannon Shakrowski. Stella George, Amy Catpat, Geeky Jen, Morgan Silvers, Cassie Sheeder, uh, W. Margie Brown, and Air to Sea. Arise! Can I just say that's my favourite part of the episode, is when you have to read out the names. Because uh, I imagine you don't rehearse and this is the first no. thing you say about that. We've got some shout-outs to do for other podcasts because obviously we're not going to be doing a lot of podcasting while we're waiting for the grand final to be finished Mm, mm. a brand new rex factor inspired podcast is out oh yeah pontifacts pope indeed reviewing all of the popes from peter to francis obviously if rex factor ever does it it would be pope idol but they are doing pontifacts so please do check that out brand new podcast Mm, lend them your support uh the partial historians May have mentioned before, these are two Australian Roman experts, actual experts, unlike, yeah. <laughs> unlike us. Um, initially, they were looking at the early emperors and the Romans on film, uh-huh. uh, but now they're doing the whole history from the foundation of the city up mm. until, I guess they stopped doing because there's a long way to go. <laughs> yeah. um, but they recently started incorporating scoring elements uh, to each episode, so they award Roman eagles based on certain things. So they were sort of inspired by us and other podcasts. They thought maybe that's a fun way of... Uh, mm of uh, doing it so do give them a listen and uh, Totalus Rankium ah oh, yes rating all the Roman emperors again inspired by uh, by Rex Factor and now also doing an American President series Rob and Friends indeed Rob provides all the cool artwork for the mm. Rex Factor episodes I'm sure you all enjoy yeah and, and lovely bloke and uh, another one to check out Saga thing if you haven't done already mm. they're putting the Sagas of the Icelanders on trial mm. uh, so they're reviewing the Sagas mm. and on cool things like best bloodshed or notable witticisms and 
things oh, like that. So that's also a lot that of fun. Like right up my straws. Do check out all of those mm. podcasts. Friends of Rex Factor, part of our podcast empire. Though <laughs> <laughs> so, so nothing to do with us, we should have. This yeah. Our, uh, yeah. Um, now, a couple of messages to read out mm. from our new Privy Councillors. Well, two Privy Councillors. Uh, Jasmine Rindisbacher is actually an old Privy Councillor. Yeah. Not old in the sense of being an old person or having left, but She's rather been there, uh, been there a while. A while yeah. So she says, uh, Francesca Suter, my fellow, uh, my friend and fellow Privy Councillor, told me that I never got my on-air thanks. Oh, no. So apparently I missed uh, her out oh, when no. we did that. So thank you to Jasmine. For yeah, <laughs> and for being a really engaged fan on Facebook. Mm. And she asked if we could rectify that only because... Rectify. Um, e. Missed it. She... Uh, uh, Francisco is uh, on a big hike through Britain right now from Land's End to John O'Groats in three months all by herself. Wow. And I know she always listens to your podcast as soon as the episode is out. Could you tell her that I'm proud of her for doing this hike alone and am also grateful for her friendship and that I'm glad I introduced her to Rex Factor but I'm a little annoyed that she really got into British history and now knows more about Alfred than I do. Ah. But I'm looking forward to doing our podcast on Swiss history and culture with her if tell tales william tell gets mentioned on your podcast we really cannot not do it yeah well you yeah well i'm looking forward to that now and uh, Kashi Shader is a new Privy Councillor. She says, I'd like to request one small favour. My 18-year-old daughter, Kaylee, who's a huge fan of yours, is graduating from high school on May 25th, also just, just Yesterday. gone. Yesterday, yeah. Uh, a few days ago. A few days ago. Uh, and starting college in the fall to major in history and minor in museum studies and medieval European history. Oh, would it be too much to ask if you could give just a small congrats to her? She's worked insanely hard to graduate in the top 10% of her class with over, with over 45 college credits already completed and with two scholarships for college. I'll tell, I tell you what, I'll give you a rather chunky congratulations instead. That, is, that is brilliant. Big, big wedge of congratulations coming your way. Her goal is to study in England and eventually live there and manage a museum. Oh, and marry a man with an accent. Let me not forget that. <laughs> Any type? <laughs> yeah, just, just a voice. Yeah. So uh, thank you very much to her, and congratulations yeah. to Kaylee. Big wedge. So thank you all very much for uh, getting in touch when you do. We love it. Whether or not it, we read it out on the podcast, it's great to hear from you. Yeah, we read them all, and we always pass them back and forth to each other, yeah. which is nice. But the most important thing for now is to vote. Oh, gosh, yeah. Who is going to win the Scottish series of Rex Factor. We are so nearly at the end. This is the last thing yeah. we need to do. It's not just it's so much more if you didn't vote in the other rounds, mm. don't worry. All yeah. is forgiven. Yeah. Who wins the Scottish Rex Factor? It's important. See you next time. Cheerio.